You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. We are turning to Genesis. We really are. And anytime we start a book, and, and this is a study that's going to go on for like 18 years, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, no, it won't. I, the best way to start a book study is go to Bible Project. If you just put in your search engine, Bible Project, it'll pop up. Uh, there are videos there on every book of the Bible, themes in the Bible. There's both sketchbook and theme videos, animated videos for Genesis. So what we're going to do here is we're going to look at Genesis 1, 1 through 11, just the beginning of the story, and then encourage you to go have a look at the rest of it. The book of Genesis. It's the first book of the Bible, and its storyline divides into two main parts. There's chapters 1 through 11, which tell the story of God and the whole world, and then there's chapters 12 through 50, which zoom in and tell the story of God and just one man, Abraham, and then his family. And these two parts are connected by a hinge story at the beginning of chapter 12. And this design, it gives us a clue to how to understand the message of the book as a whole and how it introduces the story of the whole Bible. So the book begins with God taking the disorder and the darkness described in the second sentence of the Bible, and God brings out of it order and beauty and goodness. He makes a world where life can flourish. And God makes these creatures called humans, or Adam in Hebrew, He makes them in his image, which has to do with their role and purpose in God's world. So the humans are made to be reflections of God's character out into the world, and they're appointed as God's representatives to rule his world on his behalf, which in context means to harness all of its potential, to care for it, and make it a place where even more life can flourish. God blesses the humans. It's a key word in this book. And he gives them a garden. It's like a place from which they begin starting to build this new world. Now, the key is that the humans have a choice about how they're going to go about building this world. And that's represented by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Up till now, God has provided and defined what is good and what is not good. But now God is giving the humans the dignity and the freedom of a choice. Are they going to trust God's definition of good and evil, or are they going to seize autonomy and define good and evil for themselves? And the stakes are really high. To rebel against God is to embrace death, because you're turning away from the giver of life himself. This is represented by the tree of life. And so in chapter 3, a mysterious figure, a snake, enters into the story. The snake's given no introduction other than it's a creature that God made, and it becomes clear that it's a creature in rebellion against God, and it wants to lead the humans into rebellion and their death. The snake tells a different story about the tree and the choice. It says that seizing the knowledge of good and evil are not going to bring death, that it's actually the way to life and becoming like God themselves. Now the irony of this is tragic because we know the humans, they're already like God. They were made to reflect God's image. But instead of trusting God, the humans seize autonomy, they take the knowledge of good and evil for themselves, and in an instant, the whole story spirals out of control. The first casualty is human relationships. The man and the woman, they suddenly realize how vulnerable they are. Now, they can't even trust each other. And so they make clothes and they hide their bodies from one another. 
The second casualty is that intimacy between God and the humans is lost. So they go and run and hide from God, and then when God finds them, they start this game of blame shifting about who rebelled first. Now right here the story stops, and there's a series of short poems where God declares to the snake and then to the humans the tragic consequences of their actions. God first tells the snake that despite its apparent victory, it is destined for defeat to eat dust. God promises that one day a seed or a descendant will come from the woman who's going to deliver a lethal strike to the snake's head, which sounds like great news, but this victory is going to come with a cost because the snake too will deliver a lethal strike to the descendant's heel as it's being crushed. It's a very mysterious promise of this wounded victor. But in the flow of the story so far, you see this is an act of God's grace. The humans, they've just rebelled, and what does God do? He promises to rescue them. But this doesn't erase the consequences of the human's decision. So God informs them that now every aspect of their life together at home and out in the field, it's going to be fraught with grief and pain because of the rebellion, all leading to their death. From here, the story then spirals downward. Chapters 3 through 11, they trace the widening ripple effect of the rebellion and of human relationships fracturing at every level. So there's a story about two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain's so jealous of his brother that he wants to murder him. And God warns him not to give in to the temptation, but he does anyway. He murders him in the field. So Cain then goes on to build a city where violence and oppression reign. And this is all epitomized in the story of Lamech. He's the first man in the Bible to have more than one wife. He's accumulating them like property. And then he goes on to sing a short song about how he's more violent and vengeful than Cain ever was. After this, we get an odd story about the sons of God, which could refer to evil angelic beings, or it could refer to ancient kings who claimed that they descended from the gods. And like Lamech, they acquire as many wives as they wanted, and they produce the Nephilim, these great warriors of old. Whichever view is right, the point is that humans are building kingdoms that fill God's world with violence and even more corruption. In response, we're told that God is broken with grief. Humanity is ruining his good world, and they're ruining each other. And so out of a passion to protect the goodness of his world, he washes it clean of humanity's evil with a great flood. But he protects one blameless human, Noah, and his family, and he commissions him as a new Adam. He repeats the divine blessing and commissions him to go out into the world. And so our hopes are really high, but then Noah fails too, and also in a garden. He goes and he plants a vineyard, and he gets drunk out of his mind. And then one of his sons, Ham, does something shameful to his father in the tent. And so here we have our new Adam, naked and ashamed just like the first, and the downward spiral begins again. It all leads to the foundation of the city of Babylon. The people of ancient Mesopotamia, they come together around this new technology they have, the brick. And they can make cities and towers bigger and faster than anybody's ever done before. And they want to build a new kind of tower that will reach up to the gods and they will make a great name for themselves. It's an image of human rebellion and arrogance. It's the garden rebellion now writ large. And so God humbles their pride and scatters them. 
Now, this is a diverse group of stories, but you can see they're all exploring the same basic point. God keeps giving humans the chance to do the right thing with his world, and humans keep ruining it. These stories are making a claim that we live in a good world that we have turned bad, that we've all chosen to define good and evil for ourselves, and so we all contribute to this world of broken relationships, leading to conflict and violence and ultimately death. But there's hope. God promised that one day a descendant would come, the wounded victor who will defeat evil at its source. And so despite humanity's evil, God is determined to bless and rescue his world. And so the big question, of course, is what is God going to do? And the next story, The Hinge, offers the answer. But for now, that's what Genesis 1 through 11 is all about. Isn't that amazing? I just love that. Golly, yeah. Yeah, it's a, Tim is a great guy. I want to read here, turn to page one in your Bibles. Uh, this is such a fun story. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty and darkness over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good and separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was an evening, there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate the water from the water. So God made the vault and separated the waters under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit and seed in it, according to the various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the sky, vault of the sky to give light to the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light to the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from darkness. And God saw that it was Good, And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters teem with living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing with which the waters teem, that moves about on it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the 
water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move across the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Dot, dot, dot. I'd love to keep going, but Gabe just do that next week. Such an amazing story. Such an amazing story. And when we think about this picture, the whole thing, there's some things that come to our attention. First of all, this is a beginning story. It is an origin story. It's set against the origin stories of the ancient world in a very, very different way. But it's more than an origin story. It's a foundation story. It's a, it's a beginning that's going to f- erupt, expand, and guide everything we do in this foundational story that we called Genesis. It's important to realize that this is his story, not just ours. It tells us more about who God is than anything else. It tells us his character, what he did, why he did it, and it tells us that he created us as a part of that story, but always in relation with him. And of course, the serpent's thing is you don't need to be in relation with him, and thus began the brokenness in this world. It is his story. And we focus on who is this creator God. thing to realize here, and this is a perspective I think is important, is this story is not written to us, 21st century scientifically informed Americans. It is written to an ancient world, an ancient people called Israel. I suspect this initial story was written by Adam himself. But it was all stitched together by Moses to give to the people as they were leaving Egypt to cross the wilderness and go into the promised land. It was written for a story of Israel in an ancient world in a very different worldview around them than our worldview today. And that's the story that he gave to them to guide them as they went into the promised land. But that story is for us. It's a response to the same serpent as before. It's a response that tells us how to live to be a community of faithfulness and justice and grace in relationship with the God who is the creator. It's not written to us. And therefore, uh, it's a history book, a his story book, which is kind of fun, but it's not a science book. Now, I've been a scientifically oriented guy like forever. The first Christmas present I remember getting was a microscope so I could look at stuff. And I've always had that kind of curiosity. And you know what the Bible does in my curiosity? It frustrates it to death. So annoying. What is this? Tr- how, God, how did you do stars? Did you clouds that kind of did this or just poof? And I, he doesn't say. but see the thing that's important to realize as we talk about this and this is hard for me is it's a spiritual discipline for me 
I focus on what the Bible does say and meditate deeply on what is written there for our wisdom and our loving response, my temptation is to get off and wonder about what it doesn't say. And what that does is lead, a lot of times, to foolish controversies and divisions that ought not happen. And I think that's an important perspective. And like I say, for me, it's a spiritual discipline. I need to ponder deeply what is here. And God knows there's a lot here to ponder. But my curiosity wants to go different ways and think, well, what if? Or how did? Or, and a lot of times, the how questions are just not done at all. And many times, frustratingly, the why question is not answered. Much more often, it's the what now and who is. And those are things I need to ponder on and ponder deeply. We will do a series of forums. The first will be next week, up in 208, upstairs. And next week, we'll be talking about the date of creation and the age of the earth, focusing on that in literary design of Genesis chapter 1 in particular. And then you see we'll have a series after that. Was it really an Adam and Eve? Or are they just representative characters in Scripture? Oh, evolution? Really? Now, just let me give you a foretaste. Naturalism. When you say evolution, typically that means naturalism. It means random application of presently operating natural law. It just happened. We don't need a God or a designing intelligence or anything. And that's wrong. Okay. Bottom line, that's wrong. How come? What does Genesis 1-1 say? In the beginning, God created. See, and that's an important thing because... Like many things, evolution is a complex kind of thing, and we've got to dig into it carefully. But we can say definitively, bottom line, if you say that God is not necessary to creation, you got it wrong. Now, back on the resource table, we have a paper that's been put together on four levels. That, well, the title is, can, do we have to be equally certain about everything? And the answer is no, thankfully, though a lot of people think we should. So you've got die for, divide for, debate for, and decide for levels and explanation. They're back on the resource table. And that will guide a lot of us. An A-level divide for, or really a die for, is God is creator. And that's we're not going to compromise. As we get down and, well, how did he do it? And we'll find some debate for level things there. Love this passage. In the beginning. Did this, universe have, did this universe have a beginning? Say yes. Yeah. But you know what the fun thing is? If I go back one century, what was the date a century ago? I know it's early, but you can do it. You really can't. What was the date a century ago? 1918. Guy named Einstein, ever heard of him? He had just published his theory of special relativity in 1915. And people noticed that his equations implied that the universe had a beginning. And he, being a good scientist, said, well, that can't be. We know the universe has always been just about like it is right now, called the steady-state theory. And so Einstein put in the famous, infamous cosmological constant in his relativistic equations so it looked like the universe has always been like it is today. Because what everybody believed, except for a few, you know, rock-headed 
fundamentalists who thought the Bible was correct. Guess who won that debate? Now, everybody believes the universe, this universe had a beginning. I mean, these are the kinds of things that go on. We are not ashamed of what the Bible says, but we need to know what it does say. In the beginning, God created. Now, I look at that, and it says, God in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when I read this as a 21st century scientifically oriented person, I think of heavens, I think, you know, solar system, galaxies, all that sort of thing, speed of light, that sort of thing. And when I think of earth, I think of the big blue marble. Sherry and I were married in 1968. What was a cool thing that happened in 1968? Some dudes went up and stood on the moon. And what did they do? They took a picture of earth rise. I remember that picture of the big blue marble. See, the ancient people did not have a picture in their mind of the big blue marble. They had a picture that, of skies, stuff up there, and land, stuff around here. And I think if you read it in the first century, you'd translate the skies and land rather than space and time. And, but the point in any case is God created all this stuff. It comes as a product of God's creative work. Now, to be sure, we keep looking and we think, well, what about evil? Did God create that? Answer, no, that came somewhere else. Where did it come from? I don't know, and it's frustrating. God won't tell me that, except where it came in this world, and I had a part of that. There's also a literary design in this chapter as we read it. There's a literary design of forming and filling that runs across the six days of Genesis chapter 1. By the way, if you want to notes, you can always download the PowerPoint from the website. Uh, it's PDFs are there. So forming, the first one in the forming is day night, day one. Day two, the heavens and the waters are formed. Day three, do you know what comes up on day three? Of course you do, the dry land. Now, in day four, he begins to fill in that cycle. So you get a filling, you get the sun and the moon are put into the day and the night to rule it. Day five, you're filling the heavens and the waters, the fish and the birds. Birds are in the skies, flying around, fish in the water swimming around. And day six, you get the earth animals and humans. And you see this beautiful exquisitely done literary design and the rhythmic. It's not poetic. Psalm 104 is poetry. It's narrative. It's a story being told, but it's a very, very carefully crafted story. Every single word counts. Forming and filling. This is Jay's cartoon. How many of you are a fan of the far side, Gary Larson? Eh. Yeah, but how many of you just hate Gary Larson? You know, okay. Whatever. This is the picture of God in his kitchen. And he has a box of earthquake there. That he's going to cook the universe out of. And it's save 50 cents on the earthquake. And God says, something tells me this thing's only half-baked. <laughs> Did God create the earth out of earthquake? <laughs> no, hardly. What did he create it out of? Nothing. Nothing. He is the origin of space-time, as we believe this is teaching. It's kind of a funny thing, but nah, Gary Larson didn't get it right. But it is 
half-baked. Because in the beginning it says the earth is without form and void, in the traditional translation. Without form means uncultivated, chaotic, wilderness. Empty means uninhabited. And he creates human beings as blessable, image-bearing covenant partners to fill and cultivate the unfilled, uncultivated land. And that mission is still ours today. As we'll see, Gabe will unpack this for us next week. In the beginning, what? In the beginning, what? God. See, the thing of it is, this is a story about God. Primarily, it tells us a lot about him. And there's seeds of everything. Tim Mackey, who did the voice on the video there, is arguing that everything in Bible has its seed in the first three chapters. And I think he's right. But they're only seeds. You have to read the rest of the Bible to get the rest of it. But God, when I look at that, we see that he is the creator. You're on your sermon note thing now. The first thing it tells us is that he is creator. It uses the word Elohim there, which is about the the powerful God who creates. Later on, we'll see that this one who creates is Yahweh, and we'll get his personal name. Starting in chapter 2, verse 4, he'll start using Yahweh Elohim. This Elohim, who is Yahweh, he is creator. I look at this, and I, I, just, I get geeked out on all kinds of stuff. You guys know that. I look at there, we have God, but what else do we have down there in the fourth line? What do we have down there in the fourth line? Who's that? And immediately what should happen is you should start having, because this is in the text, you start asking, who is this? I thought God created, now I've got Spirit of God showing up. Is this God's power in action? Or is this some sort of personal distinguished from God? And then in the last line, we see God said. And that speaking ends up being a very, very... And it's, it's, are you confused yet? Say yes. Yeah, absolutely. This God said... We keep reading the Bible because I think the Bible is to be read as a whole. I go to John chapter 1... And what does it say there about the beginning? Same beginning, John 1.1, 1, 1, Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, same thing. In the beginning, what was the what? Let's see. And God said in Genesis 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Not just an expression of God, but was God. With him and through him all things were made with him nothing. And that sounds like Genesis 1, except it's now we've got word in there, the logos. Like, what's that about? In verse 10, it says this, world, this word came into the world, and though the world was made through him, the word world did not recognize him. We've got this sin stuff popping again. In Colossians chapter 1, it talks about the one who is the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, Thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. What does that teach us? 
it teaches us that God is not only creator, but triune. God is not only creator, the powerful, almighty God who can speak stars into existence, but he is in some sense triune, and the New Testament unpacks that at some length. That somehow in the unity of God's essence, there are three interrelating persons. And many have said, oh, well, Christian just messed up the Bible, took the one God of Judaism, made three gods of Christianity. Actually, that's not quite true. Remember this phrase? And God said, let there be light, and there was light. In the ancient world, the Jewish people began to lose knowledge of Hebrew as they came back from the Babylonian captivity and lived under Greek rule. They began to speak Aramaic, which is an ancient Semitic language. It's related to Hebrew, but it's actually a different language. And it became the common language of the whole area. And Jewish people spoke Aramaic, not Hebrew. So what happened is they brought the Hebrew text of Bible and they did loose interpretive translations into Aramaic that they called Targums. And there are quite a few of those, and we have a number of them today. You can look them up easily on the internet. One of those Targums, the Targum Neophyte, is an ancient meditation on Genesis 1 written in Aramaic. And here's what it says that reflects on that same verse. In the Targum Neophyte, it says, not, and God said, but and the Memra of the Lord said. Now, Memra is Aramaic. Guess what Memra means? Word. Does that sound like John 1? Exactly like John 1. Now, this is not text of Scripture. This is an ancient Jewish meditation on Scripture, and it shows that the Jewish context thought of that ancient work as Trinitarian at least in seed form. So it's not just a Christian idea, it's in the ancient Jewish world as well, that somehow God is Trinitarian, so you've got the God, Spirit of the Lord, and Memra of the Lord, and we see here that God is inherently relational. Creator, powerful, yes. Triune in some very strange, impossible to understand way, but relational. And what that's saying is God in his essence is relational. Before anything was created, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as we understand it from the New Testament, are other-centered, community-oriented, related to each other. And we who are designed in the image of God are also like that. We're created for community and to be other-centered in our lives. What's the American culture say about humans? Community? Oh no, individual. It's about me. Other-centered? No, 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 no. Me-centered. So I'm an I and I, it's me-centered. Guess what? Our society is full of anxiety and despair and depression. Why? We're going against our basic design. Because we're in the image of God. The Spirit of God was hovering. And I play with that in Deuteronomy 32 as Moses' speeches are getting, last speech before I hit in the land. And he talks about Jacob, but talk about Israel. 
The Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. In a desert land, he found him in a barren waste and howl, a barren and howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye. What a nurturing, caring picture of God in Israel, but it goes on like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. It's that picture of God, very different than the gods of the ancient world. And what we see here is that God is loving. As you heard Katrina do so well in her meditation, and loving doesn't mean you affirm everything. In fact, loving may say no to something that's be distracting and, destru- and destructive. God is loving. And that word that appeared over and over and over in that first chapter that I read earlier is he is good. And the world that he creates is good. And that's the picture of God, the creator, triune, That is what we're going to do. Just like the Father is the one who lifts the widow and puts her with princes, we are the ones who carry out God's work in this world. God made a beautiful, good world. And it's still there. It's just messed up with all kinds of stuff. Serpent stuff. And that's what we do who understand that God is the one who defines what is good, what is right, what is true what is beautiful, what is real. And we trust his definitions of the good and the right and the beautiful and the true and the real and live that out and bring that goodness into the world so we go have meals with our neighbors. Now this is Jay's sermon, so I can say we might watch a ducks game with the neighbors to bring truth and beauty and goodness and prayer and hope into the world in the name of Jesus. There are prayer teams off on the sides. Some folk are there already. If you're one who has been rolled over on and you need prayer, they're there. If you're one who needs hope in your world or you just want to pray with somebody because you love Jesus so much, grab somebody next to you or go to the prayer site and we want to do that. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you are the rescuer, not just the creator, not just the loving, relational, triune, good creator, but the one who comes in your infinite power coming into deep intimacy with us. And we want to take that to the world, a restored life that relates to who you and who you are. Give us that hope in a despairing world, that courage that we started our service with, that courage that takes your life into a world that in some cases hates and kills the life. We will be faithful to you because you've been faithful to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.